Welcome to Rebellious Christian Philosophy. My name is Luke Smith. I hope you enjoy the show today. Today on Rebellious Christian Philosophy, we are looking at the moral argument. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, and I'm using the J.B. Phillips translation here, Paul tells us, Now the holy anger of God is disclosed from heaven against the godlessness and evil of those men who render truth dumb and inoperative by their wickedness. It is not that they do not know the truth about God. Indeed, he has made it quite plain to them. And he goes on to say, Thus leaving these men without a rag of excuse. One man said it like this, God has put enough into the world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing, but he has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. God has revealed to the world himself in various ways. There's plenty of evidence in this world to show us God exists. There are a variety of different arguments that the Christian can approach and come to and learn in using these arguments then in his witnessing, in uh, using apologetics and philosophy, in witnessing to the unbelieving world. We have the argument from what we call cosmology, the cosmological argument. We have the argument from design or the teleological argument. We have the argument from being or what we call the ontological argument. And we have the argument from morality, which is what we're going to look at here. And we will look at how, by the evidence of morality, we can reasonably see that God exists. Now, I am just giving you a hint at this argument, a little taste of it, if you will. There are others who've done a better job than I have, and hopefully this will just spark your interest in this argument and hope and help you and encourage you to go out and do some more study on your own. So don't think that I'm uh, giving the best argument on this. I'm just trying to give a little taste of it. But what we call the moral argument goes like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Number two, objective moral values do exist. And number three, therefore God exists. So if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And we'll look at all three of these very briefly. The first one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Well, why is that? Why is it that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist? Well, only an unchanging moral authority can provide unchanging moral laws that are binding on human beings. C.S. Lewis said we wouldn't know what a crooked line is if we didn't have a straight line. We wouldn't understand that. And that's what the idea of the argument is here. We wouldn't know evil or good, good or evil, without there being some moral authority to show us that there is a such thing as good or evil. So only an unchanging moral authority can provide unchanging moral laws that are binding on human beings. So if God does not exist, then objective moral values do exist. So objective moral values do exist. Now give an example would be truth. 
If someone says to you, truth does not exist, then you can ask them, well, is that true? Are they telling you the truth that truth doesn't exist? They might go on to say, well, I see what you're saying there, but there's no such thing as absolute truth. Then you can ask them, well, is that absolutely true that there are there is no such thing as absolute truth? Truth is an objective moral value, proving that objective moral values exist. Now, the same thing can be said with, with people's convictions they have. Now, of course, there's different convictions in different types of people. But specifically, when we, like in our culture, we think about the days of slavery and how everybody's upset about it. Now, it makes no sense for everybody to be upset about it if objective moral values do not exist. But if objective moral values do exist, and slavery then is an objective moral value or is in the, idea, in the realm of objective morality, then you can understand why people would be upset about it. But if objective moral values do not exist and there is a such thing as right or there is no such thing as right or wrong, it makes no sense then for someone to be upset about something that someone else did because that would just be someone else's speculative opinion going against someone else's speculative opinion. So, objective moral values exist. Number three, therefore God exists. So, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. The conclusion you can draw from there being evil in the world and there being good in the world is that objective moral values exist and therefore God exists then. When you see evil happening, you realize God exists. But some may say, well, there's too much evil in the world, therefore there can't be a God, or God doesn't exist because of the evil in the world. As I said, that really evil in the world proves that God exists. So to kind of give you a good way to answer that question, you could say this. When you assert that there is such a thing as evil, you must assume there is such a thing as good. When you say there is such a thing as good, you must assume there is a moral law by which to distinguish between good and evil. There must be some standard by which to determine what is good and what is evil. When you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver, the source of the moral law. Without a moral lawgiver, there is no moral law. Without a moral law, there is no good, there is no evil. So when someone stands up and says there's no such thing as God because there's too much evil in the world, you can answer them with that test to see if their argument really stands. So without God, the moral lawgiver, without God, the moral lawgiver, everything would be a matter of human opinion. So if there is no such thing as God, what I say and hold dearly to would just be my own speculative opinion. And then what you say would just be your own speculative opinion. There would be no such thing as right or wrong. We would, it would all be subjectivity and not objectivity. Absolutes wouldn't be existing. As I said, there wouldn't, it, it doesn't work out when you actually try to think through the whole idea of there being no such absolute because if you say it, then it's not an absolute. If you say there's no such thing as absolutes, you're saying an absolute statement. 
And what you're saying ends up falling right back on itself. So without God, the moral lawgiver, everything would be a matter of human opinion. When the moral lawgiver is taken out, the moral law is gone. And then we have no way of telling what is right or what is wrong, what is good or what is evil, what is sin, what is not sin. When the, this type of philosophy then is put into practice, you end up with this type of reasoning or this type of philosophy then by Richard Dawkins. And if, I'm sure most of you have heard of Richard Dawkins, the atheist uh, biologist. Richard Dawkins said this, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Others are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Which is funny that he says that because he'll go on and condemn Christianity for being morally evil. And it ends, like I said, he ends up, his whole philosophy doesn't work out. G.K. Chesterton said this whenever. You remove any fence, always pause long enough to ask why it was put there in the first place. When you take out the whole idea of God, the person ought to first think about, well, why do people believe in God to begin with? You know, that's kind of what Chesterton's saying there for the person who would say there's no such thing as God. Because as I said, you take God out of the picture, then no moral laws exist, good and evil doesn't exist, and then you have really survival of the fittest type of mentality going on. And so with the no God philosophy being played out, you wind up with this type of conclusion. As I said, this, this speculative opinion type of ideas going through. And we, and we see this in our world, by the way, if you haven't, you know, just turn on the, the news and, and uh, do a little research and you'll see this and just do a little history research really. And you'll see, you'll see this taking place throughout all of history. And so with the no-God philosophy being played out, you wind up with this conclusion. Number one, nothing is really just or unjust, good or evil, right or wrong. Number two, there are no true moral causes or human events or human rights. And number three, Hitler, Stalin, murderers, pedophiles, rapists, cannibals, etc. are all are not morally different than a Mother Teresa. So nothing is really just or unjust, good or evil, right or wrong. There are no true moral causes or human rights. The Hitlers and the Stalins, the murderers, are not morally different than a Mother Teresa when no God philosophy is being played out in the world. But, as I said, you end up going in circles with that type of reasoning when you posit the no God philosophy, the no God idea, the no God theory. You end up going in circles. And many of them have done this. If you want to do a research of certain philosophers who were no no god or anti god philosophers the the god is dead movement people if you will take a look at friedrich nietzsche or albert camus or um jean paul sartre and going into the more of our modern day the the richard dawkins and the sam harrises and the um christopher hitchens you see them going in circles with their reasoning. They're arguing that there's evil in the world and at the same time 
saying that God doesn't exist. And they're not able to come to terms that evil can't exist unless God exists. And I'm, I, I encourage you, read some of their, their, their books. John Paul Sartre, for, for instance, in his book, Existentialism is Humanism, he does this. But at least he had the good sense to say that if God doesn't exist, then what we do doesn't matter. And Nietzsche said the same thing. He, In his parable of the madman, he said that God is dead. And he says that's not a good thing to be praising, that this idea that God is dead, because it means mayhem is going to take place. And Camus said the same thing, and the reason why Camus was known as an absurdist. And many of them had different approaches on how to deal with this problem. The Richard Dawkins and the Christopher Hitchens and the Sam Harrises really don't have any conclusion. They just say God is dead, and then they, or they say God doesn't exist, and then they just say evil, evil, evils in the world is how we, how we can fix it. But they don't really solve the problem. And really, if you, the people who are most honest are the Nietzsche's and the the Camus and the the uh, the Sartres. They they make the most sense out of out of uh, out of these non God philosophers. But they end up going in circles regardless. Uh, Nietzsche, as Je Chesterton said about Nietzsche, if, if Nietzsche hadn't uh, ended in imbecility, then Nietzscheism would have ended in imbecility. And the same thing, you know, Sartre, I, there's been various people that have said Sartre on his deathbed called for a priest because his philosophy couldn't be lived out. Now, you'd, you'd have to do some research to know if that, what I'm saying is true about that, you know. Uh, Camus, there's another story of him coming to a... A, a, a certain re a Methodist reverend and asking him and questioning him about the, the Christian religion and because you know he realized his ab absurdist philosophy couldn't be lived out the existentialism of Sartre couldn't be lived out purely in the ways they thought they could have and usually a philosophy falls or stands uh, based on the the experience you go through in life as you try to live out that philosophy but you end up going in circles with your reasoning G.K. Chesterton summed it up like this talking about the modern skeptic. He says, the man of this school first goes to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt by rebelling against everything. He has lost his right to rebel against anything. And that's what these non-God or anti-God philosophers do. They lost their right to rebel against anything as they try their best to rebel against everything. And so, with that type of reasoning, you end up with the same philosophy, though, that Hitler had. And Hitler's goal was to exterminate a race of people. and Six million Jews died because of that type of philosophy being played out. They rejected God and they ended up creating a God in their own image. Hitler took the philosophy of Nietzsche and really corrupted it, corrupted it in a lot of ways because Nietzsche would have been totally against what Hitler did. But Nietzsche or uh, Hitler took the philosophy of Nietzsche 
of, of Nietzsche's Superman or Overman and tried to say that the Aryan race was the Overman and he changed the value system in Germany. And do a little research, you'll know that I'm right about that. He changed the value system. He tried to change morality. And, and if there is no such thing as God, what Hitler did is just him doing what he did. But six million Jews died because of that kind of philosophy. If God exists, though, what Hitler did was bad because it gives us a moral law to and, and shows us what good is good and evil is in. But if you examine what Hitler did and what Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ did, if you examine what Hitler did and what Jesus Christ did, you will come to the conclusion that what Hitler did was bad and what Jesus did was good. If you ask anybody, anybody this, that knows about Hitler and knows about Jesus Christ, and they've read the writings of Christ or the, the, the biographies about Christ and the Gospels, and they've either experienced what, went, what happened in Nazi Germany or they read about it, they saw the atrocities of it, they've been to the camps, they, they'll come to the conclusion that what Hitler did was bad and what Jesus did was good. But, once again, if there is no God, then that just becomes your opinion. And who would care for your speculative opinion? I've asked atheists this question. Do you think Hitler was bad? They say yes. Do you think what Jesus did was good? They say yes. And I'm like, well, how can you come to that conclusion of good and evil without a moral law to distinguish between that? And they usually can't answer. They try to change the, the question a lot. So this is a really powerful argument, really. The moral argument itself is a really powerful argument to get people to really think about the philosophy they're trying to espouse. As I said, though, there is plenty of evidence in this argument that God exists. This argument is one that, you know, I'm not going to say necessarily proves it 100%, but it gives enough evidence, enough reason to show us that as something that a Hitler did was bad and something that Jesus did was good. There's enough evidence to point to God here. And we understand good and evil, once again, by that moral law, and the moral law then by that moral law giver. So this is very understandable and very reasonable. Even somebody like a Thomas Jefferson would say this about a Jesus. He says, the moral precepts of Jesus are more pure, correct, and sublime than those of ancient philosophers. Now, how would Jefferson come to that conclusion without believing in a moral lawgiver? How would we, once again, come to the conclusion that what a Stalin did in, in Soviet Russia was bad if there's no such thing as the moral lawgiver, or what Hitler did, or what's going on in China, or what's going on in Libya, or what's going on in America with the abortion epidemic that goes on here? How can we say that's bad or that's good without there being such a thing, such a person, as a moral law giver? And as William Lane Craig said, why would we have moral prohibitions and obligations if there is no one to prohibit or command them? As chemists and ethicists alike recognize Prescriptions require prescribers, and moral prescriptions require a moral prescriber. 
without a moral lawgiver, I think moral obligation is unintelligible. And so to conclude, Paul tells us that this moral law is within us and that we have a moral compass then showing us that God exists. And so the moral compass is within us, therefore God exists, therefore man is without excuse. So I encourage you to do some more research on this argument though, the moral argument. Look up William Lane Craig's work, Reasonable Faith. Look up Frank Turk's work, Cross-Examined, and you'll get more um, info than what I can give you. That is all for today. Thank you, and goodbye. Today's book recommendation is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Lewis in this book goes over the moral argument very clearly in the first few chapters of the book. This is a book that is desperately needed to be reread in our time, has become one of those classics in the 20th century that I think we all need to get a better handle on in the days and age of which we live. I encourage you to buy this book. Any of your local bookstores will have it. Um, most of Lewis's works can be found in any bookstore you go to. So I encourage you to find it and read Mere Christianity.